The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. beginning in verse 9 of John 1 through verse 13. Listen to God's holy word. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And this is God's holy word. With the publication of a best-selling book in 1976 called Born Again, Chuck Colson sprang into the public awareness in a different light than he had been considered four months before that. Those of you old enough to remember the Nixon White House and the years of the 70s know that it was a time of national pain and difficulty and political disgrace. And Colson was at the heart of that, the director, you might say, of devious illegal activities within the White House itself. Suddenly, though, with his book published, he became the poster boy for evangelical Christianity. Because after Chuck Colson trusted Christ as his Lord in 1973, even though He had time coming, and he spent time, part of a year, in prison after that for his crimes. Colson became a very different man. He described it, I think, by telling an interviewer these words, My whole view of the world has changed, and particularly my realization that Washington is not the center of true power. There are other things more important and significant than Washington, and they all originate with Jesus Christ. Colson was a living lesson in how God remakes a man all the way from those days until his death in April of 2012. He tells in the book about a crisis moment when he had met with a friend of his by the name of Tom Phillips. Tom Phillips was somewhat prominent in that he was the president of the Raytheon Corporation, but he was a friend of Colson's from law school days. And he, Colson, visited Tom at his house, and he tells about having this man, prominent in industry, witness to him about a change in his life and how he had met Christ. 
And Chuck describes backing out of his friend's house that night and getting partway out the driveway and stopping his car and being overcome with how low he was, how empty he was, and what he had heard from his good friend about meaning and forgiveness and purpose. And he tells about praying, and this is how he reconstructed the prayer as he remembered it that night. He said, God, I don't know how to find you, but I want to. I don't amount to very much the way I am right now, but I want to give myself to you. And then he said he just kept on repeating. He remembers repeating, Lord, take me. Take me. Take me. A man who had pursued worldly power, a former Marine, a tough guy. It was once said of Colson that he'd run over his own grandmother to accomplish what he wanted to do for the president. This tough guy who had pursued worldly power was born of God. And as a grown man and a tough guy, he had a new life. He was reborn, supernaturally changed, not just a decision of his own mind, supernaturally changed by God from that day forward. And the Spirit of God began reconstructing this man into the image of Jesus Christ, into which he grew degree by degree the rest of his time on earth. Well, I want to remind you of the grand concepts we've seen in John 1. Certainly, first of all, particularly in the first five verses, the vision of Christ himself as the eternal word, the preexistent Christ, participating in the creation and the equal of God. That's a shining, hit-you-in-the-face lesson right there at the beginning of John. And then secondly, what we looked at last time, the exact opposite, the darkness of this world, that despite God bringing his son, making him known as light to the world, we saw the reception he got. Verses 10 and 11. He was in the world, the world was made by him, and the world said, no. And even his own people, his own nation said, no. He's not the one. And last time we left it there, somewhat in suspense, with the great glory of Christ revealed but the world saying, no, we won't have him. I don't know if any of you husbands have been in jewelry stores. You don't have to raise your hand, of course, but uh, if you've been in jewelry stores examining diamonds recently, I have not. Um, Just in case there was any suspense on that. But you know how jewelers display diamonds always against a dark background, black velvet, dark blue velvet, so that the sparkle, the shine, the remarkable glory of the stone shows up against something dark. I see that as a picture of John 1. Here's this brilliant diamond of the revelation of Christ, the eternal, cosmic, glorious Christ, that God's message spoken to the universe. And it's against this black background of human rejection. The very people God made won't have him as a broad and general refusal of agnosticism. And that's where we stopped last time. You might have felt, you might have gone away feeling, wow, this is quite hopeless. 
God made an initiative, man won't have it. What can be done about that? Well, we've already had the hint in verse 5 that the darkness has not overcome the light of Christ. So we know the darkness isn't winning entirely. And today I hope you saw, you have to look for these little things, that the first word of the verses I'm looking at, 12 and 13 of John 1, the first word is a very, very significant Bible word. You always want to watch for it when it begins a sentence. But. But. Universal, broad rejection, but. There were those who received it. And that's what we want to look at today. This third big idea, the fact that there are some due to a spiritual rebirth who indeed do receive him and become children of God. Despite the hostility of a dark world of unbelief, of agnosticism, the coming of the Son of God was not without a good result. And in fact, that darkness, that blackness makes the result seem all the more glorious. It makes it seem like what Psalm 76 is talking about when it says that the wrath of men will even praise him. The refusal of the world to have him just makes it all the more remarkable that there were those who had him, and we need to see why some people would have him. This subject today is the subject of a new birth. People who are born of God. What is that about? How does it come to be is what we're looking at today. First of all, I want to show you from our text what is entirely unique about this spiritual birth. What is entirely unique about it? Our text describes redeemed believers by saying they are born, quote, not of blood nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. Born of God is not only the title of this message, it's the tremendous reality that is before us here. And I'm going to start with verse 13 because that's the description of being born of God and then back into verse 12 to show you what happens to those who are born of God. First of all, there, there are negatives here in verse 13. What spiritual birth is not? It's not due to your blood. Now that doesn't mean the red substance flowing in your veins. This is a figurative use of the word blood that means ancestry. It means the same as when some people will talk about aristocratic or sophisticated people and say, oh, they're blue bloods. At least we used to use that phrase. I haven't heard it so much anymore. They don't literally have blue blood, but they think they're better than everybody else. Ancestries, what, in view, what is in view here? And there were Israelites, of course, in the time of Christ who stood proud on the basis of their ancestry, and in fact, their ancestry was almost everything to them, spiritually. And they would say, well, God is pleased with us because we are children of Abraham. And they would be guilty at times, at least many times, of saying that almost in a racially exclusive way. We're the best. God started with us, and he knows we're the best. And so they would think 43 or 72 or however many generations later, God still held them in special distinction and was impressed with them because of their ancestry. Jesus shattered that. You probably know. He faced some of those folks and said, in fact, you are really not of Abraham, but of your father, 
the devil. And others of them, with that mindset, he spoke to in Luke 3 and said, God is able from these stones, these rocks on the ground, God could raise up children of Abraham that would have as much distinctive about themselves as you do. So this spiritual birth is not about your ancestry. Secondly, we're told it's not of the flesh. Now that is blunt and easy to understand. He's talking about sexuality. This birth does not originate in a man and woman's intimate union the way every single child born at Women and Babies Hospital in Lancaster, PA, has been conceived and brought to the point of birth. It's not the way it works. You won't learn what it means to be born of God by reading a textbook on obstetrics and gynecology. John 3, 6 has Jesus say later on what is born of flesh is flesh. That's one compartment of reality. What is born of spirit is spirit. That's completely different. Now, furthermore, he says again what it is not. It is not out of the will of man. Here's one way, maybe a little facetiously, that I think of that. When I was a boy, I can remember on more than one occasion being pleased with the fact that my birthday is a mid-June birthday, and I always held that as a bookend over against Christmas almost exactly six months apart. And of course, as a little kid, when you think of Christmas, you think of all the loot, right? All the packages, the boxes, the toys. And I always thought, what good planning you showed, Michael, to enter this world on June 20th so that the, the two times in the year when you get loot are about six months apart. Well balanced. Well done, Michael. Well, of course, I didn't have anything to do with it. I didn't plan it. That was a fortunate stroke that I happened to be born that way in early summer. No one plans his physical birth. And no one plans his spiritual birth. Being born of God is not something we do at all, it is done to us by God, is the insistence of John 1.13. After John has eliminated all ideas of earthly origin or influence or, or what is going to bring this about, he gives a very simple but powerful explanation. This is a birth that is of God, entirely of God. It's miraculous. It comes by God's Spirit. It eludes human sponsorship, human inventiveness. Everything to do with the flesh or human beings does not influence being born again. Now, you see, there are people who are genuinely born again who don't seem to understand this. Their slant on theology is kind of that slant of, well, I've said it before, God does 50% and I do my 50%. So, I believed in Jesus, and then I was born again, right? A lot of real Christians who would say that. I showed faith, and thus I was born again. That is absolutely contrary to this passage. This passage says those who are born of God in a moment, we'll see, are the ones who are able to show faith. After all, what situation are we in before we're born of God? What does the Scripture say about us in terms of spiritual ability? It says things like Ephesians 2.1, that before this new birth from God, we are spiritually dead in trespasses and sins. 
dead souls don't make decisions of spiritual importance. Dead souls do not resurrect themselves. Dead souls do not say, ah, there's a bottle of medicine called the new birth. I think I'll drink some. Dead souls are dead. Ephesians 2.5 says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even then God made us alive. God made us alive. James 1.18 says, it is of God's own will that he brought us forth by his word of truth. He brought us forth. He gave us birth. This is God's work. I pose the question, what is entirely unique about spiritual rebirth? What is unique about it is simple. Only God can bestow it. Now, secondly, I back into verse 12 because I wanted to describe first spiritual birth, but now 12 talks about what those who are spiritually born of God are able to do. What is it that those born of God are uniquely able to do? There's two things here, two wonderful results of the divine transformation that the birth of God in our souls brings about. One, those persons whose spiritual deadness has been brought alive by the Spirit of God can do this, receive Christ by believing in his name. Flipped the TV on at breakfast this morning just to check the weather or news real quickly as we were eating breakfast and caught about 30 seconds of Charles Stanley on TV, and he was talking about a very familiar subject to most of us having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And he said, and you have to receive Christ. I said, amen, Brother Stanley. You're right. And that's what this says too. There are those who don't participate in the universal refusal of Christ that the world in general showed and his own Israelite people showed because the beginning of 12 says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, ah, Now, how do you do that? Well, if you read the whole sentence all the way through the end, it is, by the way, those two verses are one sentence. You find out that that's because you're born of God. The reason you're different, the reason you're able to receive him is because you've been born of God. And you receive him not just by an intellectual transaction and saying, hmm, in my brain, I think Jesus must be different. And so by thinking that, by having this intellectual grasp of the concept that Jesus is utterly unique, I guess I'm receiving him. Well, the verb receive is a very strong verb here. It means to take hold of, to grasp, to hold on to, to gather into your embrace. It's a strong verb. It's the kind of verb that a man would be thrown a life preserver from a ship when he was drowning and going under, and he would grasp the life preserver. That's what faith does. It has to take hold of Christ, and it has to believe, as this text says in an unusual expression, believe in his name. What does it mean to believe in the name of Christ? Quite simply, it means to believe in all that he is and all that he does and all that he claims and all that he promises. And if we read that in the beginning Christ was the Word and He was with God and He participated in the creation, and if we read elsewhere that He was the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through Him, believing in His name means taking in all of that and holding on to it and saying, yes, this isn't just intellectually true. This is my life preserver. 
I'm staking eternity on the truth of these things. So God must first bring the soul to life, and then the soul can receive and can show this wonderful faith. You see, the faith comes like warmth and heat radiate out from a campfire. Somebody's got to light the fire. God lights the fire of the new birth, but then comes the warmth and heat of faith, conversion to Christ, childlike trust that takes hold of him, not as an abstraction, not as a theological principle, but as the greatest person, the greatest person in the entire universe. That's the first result of new birth. Secondly, those born of God do something else. After they exercise saving faith, it says here that they are given the right to become children of God. Now, people will quibble over that phrase, child of God, and some people want to use the the, the phrase only generally, and they say, well, isn't every child good grief? I just held a new grandchild a few weeks ago, and the marvel of it all is, is fantastic. Isn't every beautiful little child born into this world a child of God? Well, in terms of technical theological language, no. That new child, of course, is made in the image of God, breathes the breath God gave to humankind, but is part of the sinful race of humanity. And the phrase child of God is a special phrase in the Bible describing those who belong to God through faith in Christ. If we looked ahead to a letter that John wrote, not the, the gospel of John, but his epistle, 1 John, and many things chime in, by the way, from if you want to read 1 John sometime as we're proceeding through the gospel of John, you'll see so many parallels. 1 John 3, 1, we find this exclamation as John writes to believers in the church and says, behold what kind of love the Father has given us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Isn't that wonderful, John is saying. And he's not writing to the world at large. He's writing to believers saying, God has called us his children. We're in his family. Isn't that fantastic? Do you realize God has separated us out of that mass of people who are in darkness, who rejected Christ, and by giving us a new birth has allowed us to believe and become his children? And from that point on, the Bible goes on to think about all the things that are involved in being a child of God, being in the family. We have the rights and privileges of family members. We're seated. Ephesians 2, 6 says we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. I often thought about that. Isn't that amazing? Here we are still walking through this world, but we've got a reserved seat. My wife and I are interested in a particular movie that's just out, and we're thinking of maybe seeing it between Christmas and New Year's. I was like, oh, it's a terrible type to go to the theater. But they've got this new way now that you can go on the computer and get your seat before you get there. I said, that's how we'll have to do it if we're going. Let's make sure we have a reserved place. Well, the Scripture says believers have a seat reserved in the heavenly places. They belong to the family of God. We're not yet perfect. We're far from perfect, but we're growing little by little in the, into the image of Christ, our elder brother, and one day we're going to see him face to face, and that same 1 John 3 says, we'll be like him when we see him. Marvelous. Our destiny's secure. Our place beyond death is secure. We don't look at death and say, well, maybe. I hope God might find me good enough God might add up all my miserable life and 
and see that the balance tips somehow enough towards the good that I could... No! No Christian talks that way. My seat in the heavenly places is reserved because I belong to God in Christ. And we are not arrogant when we talk about our certainty of eternal life. We're simply claiming the gospel. Romans 8 says you belong to Christ. You can't possibly not belong. There's a family bond stronger than iron. Have you read about the National Dome, the, the Capitol Dome in Washington? They're redoing it. Putting, there's going to be enormous scaffolding around it, I understand, for a couple of years. That dome is, is not made of stone, as it may look like. It's made of cast iron. And it's lasted a long, long time. It was put up there during the Civil War, but strong as cast iron is, there are big chunks of it falling off. So I don't want to say our bond with God in Christ is a cast iron bond because that will rust and break. It's a bond of the pledge of God himself to hold his child and to never let you go. The two-handed grip of the Father and the Son to never lose anyone for whom the salvation of Christ belongs. And so we can say with 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, if he has received him by faith and been given this privilege of being called a child of God, what does 2 Corinthians 5.17 say? He is a new creation. All the old stuff is gone. And everything's become new. John 1 testifies of being born from God, leading to faith, leading to adoption into the family of God. Marvelous. Simple, but marvelous. The story's told of a church, I believe it's supposed to be a church in London. It's, a, it's an old story, and I've lost some of the detail, but I know the basic outlines of it. And at this church, a new pastor came and was inducted, and this was a church, it was a rather sophisticated place, a lot of Wealthy folks came and folks who thought themselves, you know, kind of, we, we need a, a pastor with a doctorate and we need a pastor who, who fits our level of sophistication. And uh, this pastor came and he announced his text the first Sunday, John 3, 7. Jesus telling Nicodemus, you must be born again. And he preached a very basic gospel sermon, you must be born again. Okay, they said, I guess we need that once in a while. Second Sunday, pastor came. John 3, 7, you must be born again. He didn't say all the same words, but he preached again on that text. The elders and others were kind of looking at each other. Has this guy got only one sermon? Doesn't he understand? We're pretty sophisticated people here. Third Sunday, John 3, 7, you must be born again. Well, this time the elders were getting a little perturbed, and a couple of them got the man aside in his study and said, pastor, Uh, we're still convinced that you're God's man for us, but we don't understand. You've preached three straight Sundays on you must be born again. Why? And the pastor said, because you must be born again. And I'm quite sure that many present in this church are not born again. And I will preach it again yet. On this Christmas Sunday, I propose the vital question. Have you been born of God? Have you been born of God? Can you know that if it's true? Do you understand that if you 
celebrate Christmas without being born of God, you're really celebrating a sham, a mockery. Because you're people of the darkness who resist him, who don't receive him. Have you been born of God? Now, maybe you respond to me if you're a thinking person. You say, now, wait a minute. You just told me that I can't do anything to influence being born of God. So why would you ask me as if thinking about it, I could do something? Here's what I'm asking. Because you can look at yourself, your conscience, your mind, your spirit, and you can evaluate by the fruit in your life as to whether the tree of new birth is there or not. Just ask yourself any of these questions here. Let me just give you a few suggested questions. One would be this. Are you conscious that you are a sinner, alienated by birth from a holy God, and that really he is offended at you if you come to him in the state that you are naturally as a sinner born into this world? Answer that question to yourself. Secondly, does the good news of Christ as the Bible presents him ignite in you any kind of spiritual interest or attraction? Are you drawn to him in any way at all? Thirdly, do you sense some personal desire to go beyond just being interested to literally trust in Christ and lay down your life and say, yes, I want that? Well, listen, if your answer to any of those three questions or all of them is yes, I have to tell you there is the best of evidence at work in you that you either have been or are certainly on the way to being born of God. Because the answer to those questions is a decisive no for people of unbelief in this world who don't want Christ, who won't receive Christ. The Scripture says about them, they are without God and without hope in this world. Do any of those questions prod a yes? I believe, I can tell you, if they do, the Spirit of God is at work in you, is awakening you and leading you, drawing you to the place where you too would come to him by faith and be reconciled with him eternally. If you do find yourself responding to Christ this way today, let me tell you, it's as simple as doing what Chuck Colson did in his friend's driveway His prayer was the most simple, mustard seed, childlike prayer, this sophisticated guy. He was an attorney, graduate of a fine law school. He had worked in the White House. He had been a Marine officer. And there he sat blubbering in his friend's driveway saying, Lord, take me. Take me. The first cries of someone born of God can be exactly that. And God hears it. I'd invite you today as we close this message to bow your head. And maybe you're a person that needs to pray this prayer that I'll pray for you. Almighty God, I see today that I'm far worse off in my sin and guilt than I once realized. I see that I have no hope of saving myself. I see in Jesus Christ a Savior more excellent than I could have possibly imagined. I come to him. I ask you for what I do not deserve. Save me. Receive me into your family. Adopt me as your newborn child. Take me, Lord. Amen.